Friends, this first scripture comes out of a book that we don't spend a lot of time in, the book of Ruth. And there is a phrase here, and let me just undergird this with just a, a tiny bit of history. And this is that Ruth has just lost her husband, Naomi, um, is her mother-in-law. And in these times when you lose your husband, you lose all source of income or security, all source. And they are in desperate need, in desperate times, and go and find a person um, out of Moab where they lived into Bethlehem. And they find a young man named Boaz, a, a respected member of the community, who shows us radical hospitality and biblical proportions. And we, ha- we hear these words of relationship. Take them to heart as you hear David read. Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death departs me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. The gospel this morning is, again, familiar words. And again, about welcoming in some way. Words that Jesus responded to a question about who is my neighbor and lifted up the hated Samaritan as one to whom they needed to learn what being the neighbor, welcoming, taking care of meant. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers, he said? The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is God's word. Last week, I've uh, spent uh, four days at the cabin uh, doing study leave. And what that means uh, is that 
if you were to walk into the great room of the cabin, which I'm going to describe in just a minute, you would see books everywhere, papers everywhere, flip charts all over the place, looking at all kinds of different things about what is needed or what could happen now in the coming year, particularly focused on one word, and that is vision. Vision. What is a vision beyond what we you know wear in our glasses or the eyesight that we have what in the world is it that when we're talking about when we talk about vision even with the the words of the psalmist ringing in our ears without vision the people perish without vision the people perish it's always interesting coming into ministry out of the business world and knowing that uh, in looking at vision in business, how, how, what it means, and we're, we're doing more and more and more work in churches trying to take some business models and apply them to churches. And I think to a great extent that's important as long as we understand what's at our foundation. But in business, a vision is always designed to set something out there far enough in order to put pressure on the current realities of your business or organization to propel it toward a future dream, a future dream, whether we're Boeing or Microsoft or Starbucks or Amazon or anything, every organization has to have a vision, including a church. I remember being given, I've talked about this a couple of times, this incredible booklet of, of describing you, describing Aldersgate some six or seven or eight months ago. Not about page seven, were these words. Our statement of vision is, we gather all people, heal and transform them, and send out passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, friends, I've been here for six months now and watched carefully to see where that may or may not be happening. And I see part of my role in serving a church is to help us continue to identify those places. But I'll tell you what happened last week, is in thinking about this, I kept thinking about the cabin. But i got to describe this to you, the cabin. Dorothy and I, three years ago after moving back from Southern California and finally being able to come home, come back to the Northwest, had, had put together at least a minimal amount of money that could be used to purchase something, a place that we could kind of call our own, a place to which we could retire or those kinds of things. And we spent 10 days looking all over the Olympic Peninsula looking for that right place. I know that some of you have been in the middle of house hunting uh, over the last few weeks and months, and it's not easy. I don't know how many places we looked at, 20 or 30, and some of them caught our eye, and some of them were great, and nothing really was that place. And as an afterthought on the way home, because we were staying kind of on the, the northern edge of Hood Canal, I thought, well, maybe we should stop at just Lake Cushman and just look around the Cushman area to see if there might be something there. And I'd owned property up there about 20 years ago or 30 years ago and, and just thought, okay, we'll, we'll take a look. So we found this place online, this one house, the ugliest color you would ever imagine for a place in the woods, bright ice blue. Talk about not blending in. But there was something about it. <clears throat> and so we decided, okay, we'll stop in there. And so we went to the Lake Cushman Realty and, and met Art. Art was this kind of hard-nosed New, New Jersey guy who 
who, you know, just wanted to show us this place. And, you know, we looked at the pictures online, and it looked pretty nice. And, and so we drove up to the place with Art, and we got out of the car. What, what is it about real estate pictures? How do they do this magic? I mean, come on. I, we walk in, and, and the gate is, is locked, and so we, they open the gate. And what you're confronted with first, on the Olympic Peninsula and in many places around the Northwest, you know, you don't have weeds. You have weeds. These weeds were six to seven feet tall. I've never seen anything like this. The soil must have been so rich that it just loved to bloom and blossom out of this stuff. And so we fought our way through the weeds up this kind of interesting walkway and came to the ramp that led up to the front door. And, and the first thing you notice about the ramp is it's kind of a, it's supposed to be red, but it's a certain shade of green. And, you know, Art walked up there first and slipping four or five times. I noticed there's like ice skating up, uphill. And so we thought, okay, we could do this. I happened to, you know, walk around the ramp and hop up. But, but, and, and as he was fiddling with the lockbox, which he couldn't quite get open, Dorothy and I went around to the back to look at the deck, which overlooks Lake Kokanee, which is this beautiful lake. But you couldn't really walk on the deck because the deck was in varying degrees of different kinds of rot and decay. With, with some of it was red and other elements white, and it was, the boards were kind of pulled up at different angles, and the nails no longer held. Uh, the view was nice. And, and while Art was still struggling with the lockbox, we went into the garage, and, and being the old construction guy, I thought, okay, this is a fairly new garage, and it looks pretty good. And we went up the stairs, and... and the guy who had obviously tried to rebuild the upstairs room in the garage wasn't finished, but the ceiling was being held up. The sheetrock was being held up on the top of a bookcase by uh, a ratchet set case. <laughs> I thought, oh, my Lord, what, has, what have we done? We're going to go home and just feel absolutely like failures. Finally, Art got the lockbox open. And the front door, which is that 1970s kind of front door with the pockets of wood and that yellow kind of rippling glass, kind of gold yellow, um, you know, not pretty. Um, but then he opened the door, and it was immediate. We were home. What Art kept saying to us as a warning was, it's pretty cabiny. <laughs> I love real estate terms. It's pretty cabiny which means it's really, really rustic. Well, it was beautiful. And it was rough-cut cedar planking all the way through it. The, the great room opened up in, in, in this beautiful, almost 30-foot ceiling, uh, windows on the bottom that overlooked the deck, which overlooked the lake. Uh, the kitchen was absolutely disgusting. And what Cora truly loved was the spiral staircase that was covered in that, that, that orange and brown um, 70s shag carpet. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because what we saw was something more. What we saw was a potential in a place that was phenomenal. That with sweat and work and time and love and energy, this could become something so much more. And, and there was a presence, a peace about this place where we knew that if we put in those kinds of hours, 
this could be that place that we've been searching for for so long, saving for for so long. And over the last three years, the weeds are gone. The walkway's redone. The ice skating rink ramp is no longer there. And now a beautiful walkway comes up to the front door, which is exactly the same. The deck is completely refurbished and rebuilt. And the wood pile, which was fairly empty, is where I take out any frustrations that I might have of taking those trees down and bucking them up and splitting them. It's such a wonderful time of, of energy. And it's become that place of peace. We're not done. The vision is not over. There's still more to do. But something happened. Something was seen about a future for that place that wasn't a part of the current reality. Vision is a powerful thing. And I keep wondering, what did you mean five or six years ago when you wrote those words? We gather all people. We heal and transform them and send out passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. What was underneath that statement? And so for the next four weeks, I want to concentrate on those, and I'll I'll be brief this morning. My assumption is when you wrote the words, we gather all people, my, my assumption is what you meant by those words was that we will gather, open ourselves, and welcome anyone, all people, that there's no sign on the door that says, you who fit this criteria need to stay away, but that as you open the doors, that you literally mean everyone is welcome. That's why we sang that first hymn. But what in the world does that mean? It's so much deeper than just saying hi to people, I hope. For, to begin, let's look at Jesus. Who did Jesus welcome? Who did he welcome? My favorite story is the story of the woman. Who, I, I don't like the story because of what it represents, but the one who had been bleeding for 30 years and who had to no longer embrace her children or her husband, but walk around with her left forefinger over her upper lip and yell out at the top of her lungs unclean, no matter where she went. And was so desperate at this time where she heard about this man who might be able to help her and pulling the hood low over her face, knowing that if anyone knew who she was, she could be immediately taken out and killed for touching anyone and making them summarily unclean. And so finally, can you see her working her way very carefully through the crowd, trying to find and move up to finally touch his prayer shawl and feeling something happen in her, but suddenly he stops and says, somebody touched me. And to make a longer story short, what he does immediately is is he looks around and sees her looking sheepishly at him, knowing it was her. the, The first words out of his mouth, the first word, out of his mouth was daughter pulling her into his own family immediately protecting her welcoming her in a way that was totally and completely unexpected well, what about Levi in the tax booth the most hated person uh, in that region 
what does Jesus do but invite him out of the tax booth and say, you know what, buddy, let's go to lunch. Let's go grab lunch together. And let me, let me invite you into a different kind of understanding of your own role with people. Or the centurion, and the list goes on and on and on. Jesus always welcomed people, anyone, into a deeper relationship by establishing that relationship in ways of trust. Always, always did that. And then we hear the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth. Boaz didn't need to take them in. Others had already rejected these two women, but Boaz took them in. In radical ways, embracing them and protecting them now as his own family. We gather all people and we welcome them. What if these words became defining for us? Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. I think of Bill Croft. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separate you and me. We gather all people. And the welcome becomes the door that allows them entree into this family of Christ. So I have to ask you, as compared to Jesus or or Boaz or even Ruth, how are we gathering and welcoming? I remember coming in six months ago and hearing about Cynthia Magoon and hearing that she was no longer in the position as Connections Coordinator. I have never met a more welcoming, beautiful, incredible, heartfelt person maybe in my life than Cynthia. But it appears to me that what happened with her, and she was at first service, so heard these words as well, is that what we did is place the welcoming on her as the assigned welcomer for Aldersgate. And that expanded then to those who wear red ribbons. Some of you have them on this morning. And that expanded to maybe some of the other ushers who served in that role. But friends, I've got to tell you, welcoming is not a role. It is not an assignment. Welcoming in a church is a culture. It is a culture that not one or two or five people take on, but is adopted by a whole congregation. One of the things that I looked at over study leave was looking back at Barna Institute, who have done multiple studies around what some of this means. Let me just list some of these out for you as we prepare for communion. What's interesting always in churches is how many I've served where they believe that it's really totally up to the pastor to make people feel welcome. But listen to these words out of Barnett Institute, uh, 50,000 different conversations with folks. If visitors are made to feel welcomed in the first three minutes upon entering the parking lot, they'll stay for worship. If they don't see obvious signage or are not greeted even before entering the building, they probably won't return. If upon entering the building they are not greeted by someone who is somewhat similar to them, the chances of them staying are exponentially lessened. 
if they are not given some kind of instruction around what is done in worship or don't feel that their children are taken care of or don't have a place for their children to go or don't know how to find the bathroom or varying other things, again, the chances of them returning continues to diminish. If they find the attendance sheet and are not followed up on within the first 24 hours, again, the chances of them returning drops even farther. This is an interesting one to me. If they get a call from the pastor that afternoon of the Sunday where they attended, chances of them returning are about 30%. It's his job. However, on the other hand, if they get a call from someone they met at church, not the pastor, and that call comes within the first 24 to 36 hours, the chances of them returning increases by 70%. I want you to notice that I didn't say anything about worship style. We keep thinking it's about worship style. Friends, it's not about worship style. I mean, that's, that's an important element. It's about relationships. Pure and simple. It's about relationships that establish, that are established even out there or down there where people are greeted when they leave their cars, where they feel cared for as they come in. It's not about sending people to coffee hour. It's about knowing their names and their needs. It is not about an assignment. It's not. It's about a culture. And my question to you is, do we have that culture? Are we at that point yet, or might we still have some work to do? Because let me tell you this. If the culture is not welcoming, there is no possible way that you will move into, we will move into the next stages of the vision. Because what are the next stages of the vision? Healing and transformation. And then discipleship and being sent forth. 